Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, on air, live, quarantine with my co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Hey, if this is the first time you're tuning in on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you hit that subscribe button, you'll be notified every time we upload a video, pumping out five, six videos a week, having a lot of fun doing it. And of course, if you're listening to us on the podcast side of things, a rating and review goes a long way. Uh, for Jeff and myself. Jeff, what do you think about this thumbnail? I'm getting pretty good at all these thumbnails, don't you think? Yeah, the thumbnails look uh, very, very good. Very YouTube. I, I'm, I'm joined, and I don't know if you also noticed this, but I added, I wanted to put, uh, I added YouTube to the bio. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to have wannabe YouTuber, but I figured I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act, I'm going to walk, and I'm going to talk like a YouTuber. So I just put YouTube. Okay. <laughs> so, having a lot of fun doing it. So hit that subscribe button. Um, and be sure to follow along with all the content. And if you're not following me on Twitter, what are you doing? You definitely should be. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about industry analysis. And you have recently said that a lot of your decision, it sounds like, when it comes to buying a stock has to do with the actual industry itself. Mm-hmm. And we got a few emails about that because I think people were kind of confused and okay. it's not a top down approach. Obviously we're bottom up investors, but what do you mean exactly when you say that? Like what, take me through the process. Okay. Well, in a sense it is a bit of a top down approach. Now when people say top down approach, I think they mean more like they like this industry right now. Uh, I mean it more in the long run. So take an example like Warren Buffett, right? Yeah. So Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway, a huge amount of Berkshire Hathaway's returns over the years have been made through insurance, banking, uh, advertising, and advertising-supported media stuff. There's also branded things like uh, Coke and Gillette, for example, but there's not a lot else. So a huge amount of his returns are in those areas. He, does, he has bought some things in other areas. They haven't generally had particularly good uh, returns compared to the things he's done elsewhere. And so uh, a small number of industries is where he's gotten a lot of his returns from. I think certain industries tend to be more attractive, especially for finding a business to own for the long term. Now, if you're finding a Ben Graham type business that you're going to buy now and then sell in a few years, then it wouldn't matter as much. But in the long run, uh, certain industries perform much better than other industries. And I think that it makes sense to focus on industries that you think are attractive. And I do um, pick companies sometimes, uh, because of some things I know about that industry and my interest in it. So for instance, uh, on that email that you have open that has last week's uh, write-ups on it. So it has the three stocks that were written up were Mills Music Trust, which is song royalties carrier, which is a spinoff from uh, United Technologies is a, a HVAC company. So it does like air conditioning and, and refrigeration and things like that. And then you have Otis, which is the biggest elevator company around. And I've looked at elevator companies before. I like them. Um, I've looked at some companies that do some of the same things that carrier does and I've liked them. And uh, I've also been interested in some things like uh, royalties before. So that was a reason for looking at all of them. Now, Mills Music Trust was trading at a yield or whatever that looked fairly attractive and carrier and Otis were spinoffs. So there were specific reasons to look at them, but still those industries that would be more attractive than say something like coal or something. Right? So we own a coal company that managed accounts, NACO, but um, that doesn't mean necessarily that 
I picked it that way. It was in that case, the reverse. And it really had to do with the fact that they don't put any of their capital into the coal business, whereas they do put into some other things. There are other companies that I've analyzed along those lines, mainly. Uh, one that I never wrote up, but looked at. Didn't necessarily like the company that much, but like the industry was in waste management. And that was uh, a UK company. And I decided not to write it up for reasons we talked about in prior podcast. But um, I have written up ones on the website like U.S. Lime and Monarch Cement and even probably really Sydney Airport because those industries were interesting, airports, uh, lime, and cement. So, so yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say, so like, I guess what goes through your mind when you're reading a stock? I mean, you instantly think about the industry. What are things that you're looking for like within the industry that's attractive to you? Because again, okay, coal, not attractive to a lot of people. You were more attracted to the business model within the coal business right. and NACO, even on, you know, their investor letters and stuff, the CEO themselves, they think about themselves really as a service business. Um, so, but what is it that you generally think about when you're thinking like of some sort of industry analysis, like what's attractive to you? What goes to your mind? Sure. So one is uh, an attractive industry usually has some people who've made fortunes in it. I mean, that's one of the obvious tip offs. So if you have some people who've gotten from nothing to being billionaires in an industry, that's usually pretty good. Um, that indicated that there was significant compounding because of certain uh, rules about the speed of compounding in someone's life, that if you went from nothing to having a lot of money, it's probably a good industry. Now, it might only be for the winner who you know takes all in those cases. But if you can't find anyone who's had those kinds of uh, performance, then that's kind of a tip off that it might not be as good an industry. Uh, another one is what are the long-term returns like for the stocks in the industry? So can you find examples of stocks that have all done well over 30 years or something along like that? So for instance, uh, we owned a stock. We no longer own it. Computer services, which is a core processor. There are three bigger stocks in that industry. All four of those stocks have done very well for half a century or something. So that's a pretty good sign. Uh, as opposed to that, it's hard to find coal companies that have done pretty well. Uh, NACO, before the spinoff and stuff, had done pretty well overall, but they diversified into other things. They have been trying to get out of coal stuff for a long time. They did fine um, as a stock, but we do often look at the very long-term performance of a stock for a company. The same thing for an industry. You would look to see if there have been companies that have compounded a lot there. You also can find data on returns on capital and things like that. You'd want higher uh, returns on capital over longer periods of time. But I think the most important thing is the um, stability of those returns on capital, and also the order of the company's rankings in the industry. You generally want to avoid industries where uh, the leaders change a lot, the market share leaders and stuff change a lot, and also avoid ones where you have very good returns for certain periods and then uh, poor returns after that. Though there are some cyclical companies that I mentioned in there, but usually that's it's possible to tell they're, they're not um, sort of more of a super cycle thing or whatever with those. Really. So like Monarch cement or an ad agency or something might have relatively bad results for three years or something in a serious recession, but they don't tend to have entire decades where they don't do well. Whereas if you pick semiconductor companies and you pick anyone other than like Intel, there are like entire decades where they don't do well. Are there any industries in general that you just won't go near? Because somebody listening could say, okay, well, if he's going to go and be involved with a business that has tied to coal in some capacity, will he just go anywhere? I will go anywhere for the right business model. 
the industry thing is a little complicated because sometimes people put companies in an industry that have different business models. And so you could have two companies in the same industry with very different business models. And it's really the business model, usually more so than the industry that matters the most. So I would be okay with some companies in an industry that I don't generally like. There's also some industries where it's kind of complicated. I really like banks and insurers as a uh, group to find something very attractive in there. But as an overall basket, I don't find either of them to be all that uh, attractive. So I wouldn't buy a basket of banks or a basket of insurers. However, banking and insurance really amplifies managerial talent and some cultural stuff and things so that if you have a better business model in banking or in insurance, or you have better people running them, uh, your results will be good in a way that they won't in a lot of other industries. You can vastly outperform your peers. So there are some industries that I'll pick where I would do that, even though um, I might not like the industry overall. And there might be industries where there's a leader that I really like who has a very different business model. I don't know if I'd particularly say Costco or something, but Costco has a totally different business model than most retailers. So you might not like retailers, but you like Costco or take a private company. We mentioned on the podcast that I was very interested in the, uh, in the company Bucky's, right? Uh, which runs these very large format convenience stores in, in Texas, mostly. Um, that's obviously a very different business model, the same way that Nebraska Furniture Mart is a very different business model from a lot of uh, furniture businesses. So if I saw something that seemed like the business model was so different, then I might be really interested in it. And there have been cases where um, I've picked out companies that I really like their business model, although I wouldn't in general like that whole industry. I mean, like I'm okay with the overall with the auto insurance industry. It's not like it's my least favorite industry in the world or something, but I wrote up Progressive and that's because I like their business model best. Geico has a good business model too. There's one or two others that do. I don't like the business model of most of the others in there. Um, and so that's just, that tends to be the case in a lot of industries where there's, I might not like the industry overall, but there are a few where I might like their business model. And sometimes it's hard to expand that long-term. So there's great examples of Southwest Airlines in airlines, you know, Nucor and Steel, Walmart in retail and all that. Unfortunately, as they expand over time, their business model tends to blur more into what the rest of the industry is doing. But in the early days where they're more in a niche and more protected from some other things after a size, then their business model is really unique. And then they might be attractive even if I don't like the industry overall. Is there any, so I mean like, okay, so in this article, the Focus Compound Daily, you were talking a little bit about home builders. Mm-hmm. Would you never, could you ever see yourself investing in home builders? Sure. I can invest in a home builder at the right price. But like, I mean, you would not be bearish on or bullish on them right now, right? With everything going on in, um, in like with interest rates or just, you'd be very negative on home builders currently, correct? I don't think land prices are that low generally. So, I mean, their inventory consists of land. So I would, I mean, if if we were going to time things, I would prefer a time in which land is really cheaply priced um, because then your, your balance sheet is full of stuff that's likely to go up in market value over time rather than stay the same or go down. So yeah, that's true. Although if the stock's cheap enough, then it's attractive. So it's a combination of price to book 
and what they're carrying those things on their books at, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just specific things about if you know the area and stuff like that. Um, and of course, in home builders, we've talked before about NVR, they have a different business model. Some home builders have different business models. We've talked a little bit about Greenberg Partners. They have a somewhat different business model uh, and more complicated financial statements because of that. So, yeah. Yeah, I just, I really think it comes back to like the, the individual business itself for you, right? Um, you may be maybe agnostic towards the type of industry, but it, at the end of the day, it just comes back to, okay, you can own a business in the coal industry um, if it has a unique business model that you think is, you know, high quality, um, you know, safe, et cetera. Well, it really comes down to Porter's five forces, that sort of thing. So if the business model in some way insulates you, from the problems that the industry has, which are generally the first things I think of is what is your bargaining power with suppliers? What is your bargaining power with customers? Uh, and what is the rivalry in the industry? So when I say I like an industry, let's say I like um, ad agencies or something, right? Yeah. I generally would like them or elevator companies because you have fairly low rivalry in the industry, it usually seems. And then you also have uh, a high degree of bargaining power over your uh, uh, customers in that case, um, generally. So like take the elevator example, th- there tends to be a high degree of um, willingness to pay a fair amount of money over time over the entire life cycle of an elevator to keep having it maintained by a company that you gave the contract to uh, fairly early on and you're renewing with them and stuff. Um, you generally, uh, they, we'll use those two examples because they're both good that way. Um, there's like contractually, you're not very obligated. There aren't money much in the way of penalties or much in the way of like advanced notice that you have to give either an elevator or company maintaining your elevator or an ad agency. You can quit very easily. So there are relationships in ad agencies that go back the longest I know of that I put in the senior don't write up of uh, Omnicom in the notes go back about a hundred years, those relationships, they could quit on like 30 days notice or something. I mean, they can quit anytime they want, but they just haven't dropped them. And so they stayed with them for a hundred years or something more commonly, you know, it's decades, not, not a century, but that gives you an idea of the amount of bargaining power that you would have, because obviously if it was just a matter of take the lowest price or um, the latest fad or whatever, you would have switched your agency plenty of times in decades and stuff like that. You switch most things uh, a lot more commonly than that. And the elevator thing is the same way. So, you know, um, once someone is maintaining your elevator and you have that relationship with a a company that owns property or that manages it, then they tend to keep it. And so you have pretty good bargaining power because they're not that sensitive to prices are 2% higher this year than last year or something. So like with the elevator example, the reason I really like it, the stock isn't cheap. So I should just mention that. It's not that I love Otis as a stock. But there were things that I looked at and said, oh, they could reduce their costs to maintain elevators. They could use technology to improve how many elevators they could have the same person work on um, to do certain things to cut down on the actual number of visits they have to do and stuff. Pretty basic stuff that just has to do with them putting in systems in place that they design and stuff and someone carrying an iPhone around with them. Okay. If they do that, they can lower their costs in terms of the number of hours they have to spend and the number of visits on each elevator over time. In a lot of industries, you then have to give that to your customer or give a significant amount of that savings to your customer. But if your customer isn't that sensitive to the maintenance contract price, then you don't have to do that and you can capture the whole profit for yourself. So, you know, in insurance generally, uh, if you figure out ways to save a lot of uh, money and stuff internally, 
a significant portion of that has to go to customers because you have to price fairly low to get the level of premium volume that you want in most of those industries. So you have to have some sort of relative cost advantage, which is why I like things like Progressive and Geico, because others that don't have a relative cost advantage, you know, their customers, new customers, are pretty sensitive on pricing. So if you want to grow your, your volume, your premium volume, you have to do it at the market price, basically. So for the Otis example, did management come out and say that they think they can cut costs and be able to capture that spread? How did you come to that conclusion? Uh, I read the investor presentation and the spinoff document stuff. I'm not 100% sure management said that. Uh, but it seemed obvious. They gave numbers that uh, about increased efficiency. And it would just seem to me that they could capture that spread. Now, management, as far as I know, never said we can keep the prices the same and not have to give that spread up. But it seemed to me that if they have savings, then uh, because of their bargaining power, they'd be able to actually increase their, uh, their returns and stuff. Whereas with some other companies, the problem is that if you have savings, you do have to pass them on a lot of times. And I just think that you wouldn't pass on much of the savings in that case. I don't think management said anything about that fact, that they wouldn't have to pass on the savings and stuff. But they did give information about like how they could cut down, how they could increase the efficiency of each technician and stuff like that. And I also ran some numbers with each of the um, countries that they were in, all that sort of stuff to see how efficient they were in terms of number of technicians and, and things like that. And I've looked at other companies that are involved in um, uniform rentals and other things like that. And the things that they um, pick up and drop off all the time at, at companies and um, armored car companies and pest control companies and things like that. And if they make a really good effort internally to improve how much each person can do on their route, how much they can cover, how few calls they have to make and how quickly they can make them and things like that. Generally, the pricing is pretty good in terms of your bargaining power that you don't have to pass that on to the customer really. And so you can really improve. Um, it's kind of like a railroad or something. If a railroad becomes more efficient, it doesn't actually have to, since it's, a, it's not always a monopoly, but it's a monopoly or duopoly often. Um, it doesn't actually have to pass on those savings to the customer. So like when I talked about that book, Railroader, what's really important about that book is in an industry like the railroad industry, it's not an industry like what Amazon's in. Amazon and Walmart and stuff can create all these great savings for themselves but a lot of it gets lost to the customer. Whereas in railroads, you create increased efficiencies inside the business, you get to keep all that. And so the increase that you see in the returns on equity and stuff is dramatic, even without having increases in sales that are dramatic. At like Walmart and Amazon stuff, it's all about capturing more volume that you do. So it's, it has to, you're running to always stay in a relative cost advantage versus everyone else. Um, same sort of thing as like insurance or whatever. It's still good to have lower costs um, and it can grow your business very quickly in those areas, but I don't know that it'll cause a one-time big jump in your profits because Amazon can't really be run to keep all of any savings that they can create to themselves. They have to keep cutting prices and stuff to keep attracting more people. What do you look at right away to, I guess, um, maybe come to the conclusion that it's interesting and in, like an interesting industry that you're looking at? Is it the return capital and the numbers? Is it the margins? I mean, you could look at Costco's razor thin margins and be like, Oh, is this something, you know, an area I want to play in? But of course it's a great business, the predictability of it. And it's a very stable business. I mean, what things typically stand out to you? 
I read the business description and the description, especially of competition combined with looking at the longest term set of financials I can get. Um, and I don't think it's that different than like what it's been described about what Buffett does or something. Right. So he always has talked about like wanting to have the most past financials possible. And that's always the case with me. So even something like Monarch cement or something that we talked about, um, the company was willing to give, uh, 40 years or so of financials that were a little more detailed, not all that detailed, but a little bit more detailed than what you put in public filings. That's very helpful. Um, and then also, you know, there's a, uh, there's government stuff that I've read about cement, just like there is on online. You can get um, industry data for every year and for very long-term history for um, stuff about that, any sort of minerals and stuff uh, at the USGS is probably the best source of that, but there's other ones. There's one for oil, there's, you know, energy and stuff like that too. So you get all that data, you look at it, you get an idea based on that. I mean, um, when I talk about like Lime or something, there's just certain things that tip you off that I thought it would be a better business over time. So the Lime example is, um, it seemed like the number of Lime plants, uh, uh, so there's lime deposits around the country and stuff, but only some of them are actually producing lime at any given time. And it seemed like the number of those locations producing was decreasing over time, uh, while the amount that each one was producing was increasing over time, and that the demand like nationwide wasn't necessarily dropping. Uh, uh, so what you were having is greater economies of scale at each location, and you weren't having a lot of new entry and stuff. It also seemed like a smaller and smaller number of companies were operating the plants and especially some companies own stakes in other companies in the industry. So it seemed like rivalry in the industry was going down, you know? So those sorts of things, the sorts of things that say an antitrust uh, thing would oppose in a merger, right? Those sorts of things are the things you want to look for in the industry. Are they doing the kinds of things that reduce competition in the industry and, and that rationalize things and stuff like that? So you, Definitely want to avoid industries. Take the opposite of that or something. So what could be like one of the worst industries you could imagine? I have not invested in anything over there, but for a while I know that there are quite a lot of um, steel plants built, steel mills built in China, right? That were not all that big. Uh, a lot of new entry at very small scale and stuff is something that I wouldn't like to see that much. You often want, you know, consolidation things later. You can see what Buffett bought into. Why did Buffett buy railroads? Why did he buy airlines? It won't have turned out well for him in airlines, but there was a reason why he did it. What did he see there? And you can go back and study those things. What did he see that he thought was getting better? Another example, a really good example is newspapers. Newspapers culturally had already declined in their importance by the time Buffett bought into them. The peak for like how many people were reading newspapers and all that sort of thing and how important they were as a news source was probably the 1940s in the US. But their peak as businesses was almost 30 years later. And the reason why is that there were originally two, three, four newspapers in a city. Well, the profits aren't that good for anyone in, in when that happens. And then when you get down to one paper towns, they're really good. And so industries change over time that way until they become very attractive. So why did he think that newspapers were a really attractive industry? And you can look at any of the things that he bought into. He's usually really good about picking the right industries to buy into. And there are other investors I think are really good about that usually. If you see um, something added to Tom Russo's portfolio, it's probably in an industry that's attractive. Almost all the industries he invests in have long, better long-term returns than industries in general have. Um, he may not always buy them at prices that make it attractive for me on that particular stock. And they're usually big companies, 
But if he thinks that, you know, that industry right now is attractive enough to buy something in it, then the structure of the industry is probably pretty attractive. Got it. Cool. So the, the focus compound daily, somebody had emailed into you asking if a home builder can become a net net and you said no, but a home builder trading at less than two thirds of inventory minus total liabilities might still be cheap. And that's how you've always appraised home builders. So maybe walk me through that process and we can chat about it. Sure. So um, home builders show up a lot on screens for net nets. They're one of the most common things. That's a mistake that's being made by computers and stuff because if you actually go to a net net, uh, to a home builder's balance sheet in the US, it will not say that its uh, inventory is current, uh, current assets. But what's happening is the uh, website or whatever you're looking at always groups the inventory line, it pulls that line as a current asset. So when it goes to do the calculation, it thinks that it has a current asset in the form of inventory. Now for most home builders, the inventory turns too slowly. So you have to be careful about that. I even would warn you to be careful about certain other businesses like car dealers, because there are car dealers that turn their cars so slowly, you want to be a little careful. Uh, if, if you ever found a supermarket that was a net net, that would be really attractive in a way that a car dealer wouldn't necessarily be, because supermarkets turn their inventory so quickly that that means that the quickness of all of the current assets you have are really attractive. So for a home builder, these assets are not current, but they're still potentially very good assets because the, the land is um, booked at the lower of cost or market value. It's carried at the, the lower of it, a cost or the realizable value they think they can get for it. Now, they often don't adjust that quickly for it, you know, write it down fast enough. But in theory, if they've already written it down or if you have some reason to believe that land values have gone up or something, it could be even more, uh, it could be even cheaper than it appears to be. So it's not necessarily bad to have two thirds of your net book value consisting entirely of inventory. Uh, that's not necessarily worse than being a net net. It could be better, but it depends on the quality of that land that you have and also on the size of the liabilities and stuff. So if you have reason to know that the land is more valuable now than it was in the past uh, when it was put on the balance sheet, then that's attractive. And if you have reason to believe that um, the company could access credit and stuff, one thing you want to be careful about is it can't fund itself very well unless someone lets it borrow, uh, which is different from a net net a net net can turn its inventory into cash quickly. So I've talked about net nets before that like, um, uh, I think Barnes and Noble education was net net pretty recently. I mentioned a long time ago that, Mo I mean, I mentioned that Movado was in the last cycle. So like in 2008 or nine or something, a net net, there've been in uh, China and stuff, net nets that are watch companies. You can turn books and Rolexes and stuff into cash very quickly. So that's able to fund yourself in a much better way than a home builder. The market for homes can just stall out to the point where, you know, it's not that the prices are low. It's just, there's no volume. So there's slow assets and you always have to be careful with slow assets, but it could just mean that's really cheap. So I would think of it more as like a price to tangible book bargain than as a net net, because you have to warn yourself that this can't be turned into cash quickly. So it's not as safe as a net net in the sense of being able to, um, survive without access to capital. But if the land would be appraised at higher values than it's carried on the books, and if there's still credit flowing in the economy and stuff, then of course it could borrow and get through any trouble and eventually sell off the land and stuff. So it could be very attractive. So I would pay attention to any um, 
home builder that trades at less than two thirds of tangible book value. And in some ways that is like a net net, but remember it's like a very slow asset uh, packed net net, as opposed to ones that are very quick, which have that all in cash receivables or inventory that moves very quickly like a supermarket. Got it. Cool. Well, thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself in today's podcast. If you want to get access to the Focus Compounding daily, you could have that in your email box every single day. Uh, go to focuscompounding.com and, set, and enter in your email for free. If you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you hit the subscribe button, thumbs this video up. And then of course, a rating review goes a very long way for us on the podcast side of things. Well, thank everybody so much for tuning in. We will see you in the next podcast. Take care. All right, stop recording.